Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, Studio Ghibli's latest accolade, a Death Note sequel on the way, Hong Kong's representative at this year's uh, Academy Awards, uh, Love in Hong Kong sets, or sorry, Lost in Hong Kong sets new box office records in China, and we talk about Johnny Toe's first musical, Office. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and back in his executive office, once again, is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. I'm, I'm back. Yeah. Yes, welcome back. We had a, a brief hiatus while you were off in the field doing the things that you do. We had a oh, nice, uh, nice right. little chat with Mr. Tim Youngs last time, but uh, it's good to have you back. Glad you're Thank back you. in the in the hot seat, as it yeah, were. Back on the mic, yeah, yeah. So we are in the middle. We're, we're kind of sandwiched right now between two holidays. Right, we are just off of Mid Autumn Festival at the time of this recording, and we've got yet China's National Day uh, just about a day out from now. So we're kind of in between. Does this mess you up at all? I mean, in terms of what you have to do work wise. Um, do you mean, well, for the magazine work, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of takes, you know, we're supposed to have deadlines early in the month and things like that, so having two public holiday kind of, you know, puts everything on a fast track, kind of like, oh, we got to get the, this and that out before the holiday, whatever. Yeah, it's, um, it's but, kind of the same with, with teaching, because it's like, oh, yeah, we don't got to go to school today, but we've got to make this up at some point later, and it throws the whole schedule uh, out of whack and you know the only the only the only thing worse that could possibly happen is getting a typhoon coming through no i don't think that's i hope that's not well one just went through taiwan but that one's not coming by but it, you know it is only october and it is an el nino year so you never know yeah but did you have a nice mid-autumn festival eat a lot of mooncake do anything i did I mean, well eating of the mooncake starts about three weeks before the uh, actual festival right paul uh so so i've had plenty of time to, to eat my share. Yeah, of see, I, I only eat mine basically on the day. Uh, I'm not a huge connoisseur of the mooncake, so I do not share such such restraint. Yes, and they they actually do start advertising, and it's kind of like Christmas, you know, where they advertise Christmas around Halloween. Uh, they'll start throwing out the mooncake commercials well before we even get uh, close to Mid Autumn Festival. That's for sure. Yo, yeah, for, I mean, for good reason. It's a huge market, and you know, p these things are tasty all year round but yeah it's a, it's a good excuse to to start eating those things uh, you know I, I like mooncake sorry yeah indeed so big plans for china's national day oh a couple of movies and actually um that's where we're talking about work right every year the golden horse awards decides to announce their nominations on 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 october 1st so uh we like to get there uh and get the story out um pretty much as soon as the nominations are announced so that's what i'm doing late afternoon on that day before that i'll try and catch a few movies yeah yeah i think that's my plan as well 
uh, provided I don't get any last-minute work stacked up. But uh, we are not here to talk about holidays as such. We are here to talk about movies and movie news. So why don't we throw it over to Kevin, officially at his news desk once again, with our news for this week. Yeah, kicking off the news desk, uh, a, a right surrender flag throwing up, because guess what? Netflix is coming to Hong Kong! <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, we so, were just talking about this, what, two or three episodes ago? Yeah, well, we about? talked about it officially. You know, we were debating it once again, um, I guess, two episodes ago. And then um, while you were on hiatus, we I briefly discussed it with Tim when he was here. Um, and, you know, to be fair, as I said last time, it, I, I, it's it's not a win for me. I don't see it as a, as a necessary a loss for you. We still have to really wait and see. I mean, we're going to have to wait and see what kind of libraries on offer. Um, you know what kind you know what kind of pricing scheme they have because um, I, I, as I said I know some people in non-US non-North American countries who have Netflix and they're not all that happy with it so this could be a case of much like the um, Hong Kong iTunes store where it's just very you know so limited that it's really not worth much initially um, but we'll have to wait and see it'll be interesting though if they for as I said for me if they offer all of the the premiere content that's the main stuff that I'm interested in the, the, the you know their their series like Daredevil and Longmire that you can't pretty much get anywhere else at least not initially if they have that stuff on tap then I'll be happy to switch over from you know my US account to a Hong Kong account and support that financially the problem is whether Netflix had already sold a lot of their shows um, to local cable opera or local channels, for example, like I was saying last time, House of Cards, it's it's on CBS um, here, CBS Entertainment here. So there's no way that Netflix is going to carry that in Hong Kong version because they sold the rights to uh, and, you know, Sony is the operator. Uh, they're the production company behind House of Cards and they're the um, uh, people who own CBS Entertainment here. So actually, there's less likely of a chance they'll let Netflix Hong Kong carry it. Um, uh, you know, Netflix Japan did care, does carry Census Eight, but like you said, Paul, I mean, there's uh, a chance that a lot of shows won't make it, um, and of course, there's a whole idea uh, problem whether the library um, will have as many films as, say, the U.S. ones, and even the U.S. Um, Netflix has a real trouble with losing, you know, exclusive uh, streaming rights to sites like Amazon and and you know what are some of the other sites like Hulu and things yeah. like that. So. So yeah, there's still a lot of if and buts and maybes uh, uh, coming here. Even though you know, yeah, Netflix is coming, but what, how would they affect the present existing streaming services here in Hong Kong? Will we get even less movies on iTunes? Will we get? Um, uh, would it be a ripoff? Who knows? It's yeah. it's very uncertain at the moment. Yeah, it, it'll be an interesting development to watch and see see what happens. And I know that I think Netflix US has been having a bit of trouble. Didn't they just lose a bunch of movie titles um, a month or so ago? It was pretty big news that they had actually lost the rights to a bunch of uh, recent stuff. And I know that this happens not just with them, but it's an issue with uh, some of the other streaming services as well. I think the entire studio of movies, it was like Paramount or, or, or Disney or something like that. But yeah, pretty major studio films. Um, but I guess that's, you know, that's how it is you know there's so many films in the streaming world that you kind of like you just have to get all of them to make sure you get all the movies it's it's very difficult yeah yeah 
Well, speaking of studios, you have some studio news for us about uh, Japan and Studio Ghibli. Yeah, back to real news now. Um, Busan International Film Festival uh, starts in uh, two days. We're recording this on September 29th, so it starts later this week. Um, and they finally announced uh, the Asian Filmmaker of the Year. Um, last year it was Enhui, uh, and this year it's Studio Ghibli. Not even Hayao Miyazaki. Actually, they're giving it to the entire Studio Ghibli. Um, because they are, um, well, Busan is celebrating the 20th year. Studio Ghibli uh, is, is celebrating their 30th or 40th anniversary. Um, so uh, it's kind of coinciding uh, with the two, you know, big anniversaries. Even though it's a bit odd because they chose to give Studio Ghibli an award a year after it stopped producing feature films. Um, so that's a bit odd, but anyway, the the, the festival um, uh, cinema center, uh, Busan Cinema Center, will be uh, hosting like a retrospective of Studio Ghibli films uh, before the actual opening of the festival. So it's happening right now. Uh, Toshio Suzuki, who is the producer, the main producer, the head producer of the studio, will be on hand at the opening ceremony to receive the award. Um, so you know, it's it's nice. Studio Ghibli gets recognized again by someone, um, especially, you know, Asia's biggest film festival. Yeah, it's a safe choice. I mean, it's hard to hate on Studio Ghibli, even though, you know, they don't produce quite as much as, as they once did. Yeah, um, well, they're producing nothing, essentially. Um, uh, so, so I wonder... You want you you kind of start wondering what the politics and and how this award came about and when they decided there was word that the uh, uh, programmer didn't even call negotiate with Studio Ghibli about this award until mid September, uh, mm -hmm. which is a couple of weeks ago. So, um, but anyway, you know, yep, great, yeah, Studio Ghibli wins. Yeah, um, we don't win anything. Um, it doesn't mean that Studio Ghibli make films. So, how does it really matter to us? Eh, not much. But yeah, yay, yay. Okay, <laughs> next piece of news. Paul, are you, are you a fan of uh, Death Note? Have you seen the the two, two films? Uh, I've seen uh, I've I've seen the two official Death Note films. I haven't seen the spinoff one um, called what is it? L Save the World or something? L like Change the World. Change the World. Yeah, I didn't see yeah. that one. Um, I read the manga, liked the manga a lot, and I felt that. As we've discussed before, the live-action films kind of dropped the ball a little bit in terms of um, what what they're able to do, and and with you know budget constraints and effects constraints and things like that. I mean, it was in the in the grand scheme of, of live-action adaptations, it was okay. Uh, I can I can say that it's not by far the worst offenders um, that I've seen out there. But um, so you're. The, they pretty much wrapped up the series, right? So where's this gonna go? Is the real question. Well, yeah. Guess what? There's a third film on the way. Um, well, this season in in Japan, there was a live action television adaptation, um, television series of Death Note, uh, which apparently is a retelling of the story, um, eleven episode drama um, that wrapped up uh, a couple weeks ago. And at the end of the final episode. Um, the television network, Nippon Television, which also produced the original films, announced that, yes, they are producing a new Death Note film. 
Um, the director is being replaced. Uh, it will be directed by Sato Shunsuke, who did Gantz, uh, the film, mm-hmm. and also adapted Library Wars. I hear a noticeable groan on your end. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. But yeah, the film, the new Death Note, uh, tentatively called Death Note 2016, uh, takes place 10 years after the events of the first Death Note films. And um, it will apparently be using, or it, the story will be heavily reliant on one of the rules that was in the manga which is that um only a maximum of six death note or notebooks uh can exist in the human world whatever the hell that means um apparently there'll be new characters new story uh the original characters from the original manga or the original films will not be appearing nor will it be a continuation of the television series as far as um the announcements have told us um, so to okay, reinterpret Paul, that for the audience, it's a cash grab, folks. It's t- ten years. It comes ten <laughs> years later. But yeah, uh, uh, okay, Paul. Um, what do you know about the story? Do you know if it extends beyond the story of L and Light? Uh, you have to tell me. I have no idea. To be honest, um, it's possible. I mean, I read the original run. They may have continued it on because of the popularity. If they did, I don't know. So if you're a listener out there and, and you do, you know, please write us in and uh, educate us on this. I, I know about the light and the L run. That's what I read. Um, the rule that you brought up about the six um, notebooks, it sounds familiar, but it, from what I remember, it was not a relevant rule of, of much importance, in, at least in the movies and in the, in the run itself, because there was only like a couple people that, that had books from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowhere near as many as six, uh, but that was a long time ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, okay, it's not going to be related to the TV series, which I haven't seen, and uh, it's going to be, you know, a decade after the films. You know, okay, uh, maybe I'll I'll get some interest. I don't know. It, it just it 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 doesn't... sounds like a non-committal. But well, okay, but say okay, so. What's the groan about the the director well, choice? Yeah, Gantz was up? terrible. I mean, it just Oof. it was so bad compared with the, you know, what they were doing in the manga, and again making shortcuts, changing characters to try and compress the storytelling down and in, into you know, um, a few short hours. Many of the same gripes that we talked about when we talked about uh, Attack on Titan one and uh that i continued on in a written review of attack on titan 2 it's just uh they're they're trying to tell way too much with limited resources and limited time and they end up cutting a lot of corners and um it you know it it's only in some ways the barest of bones of entertainment sometimes that comes across but i guess it's a you know it's like it's an intellectual property and it has you know the in in the commercial sense of things, right? If you're the business person, you're sitting back, you're thinking, hey, we have this commercial property, we know that we can get X amount of dollars out, so we're gonna do something and try and get X amount of dollars with you know, a, a minimum amount of input. And that, that makes smart business sense, right? While property's hot. So you know, the, they, they, the Death Note TV series is popular, so yeah, while it's, people are still, you know, it's on people's radars, we'll make a movie. Why not? Right, so I mean, I mean surely it's going to play in Hong Kong. So they're uh, bringing back the X Files. So I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? It's like you know we just recycle intellectual properties these days. Um, we're in a creative drought, I guess. 
well, yeah, it's like a 2015. 2015's like the 10th anniversary of, of various crap. Like, well, I'm not saying crap isn't quality is crap, but, you know, stuff crap. So, yeah, that's why, you know, X-Files is going to be cool again because there's been some kind of, you know, distance between that and the original show. And now there's been some distance between that and the original films. It's like, oh, it's time to bring it back. Um, I don't when, know. When I you say distance, when you say distance, it's it's actually meaning people forgot how kind of bad it was and cornball it was, right? There are a lot of fans. I mean, they don't, both films made a lot of money, uh, both in Hong Kong and yeah. in Japan. Yeah. And I guess after Attack on Titan, people must be looking back and go, Jesus, Death Note was really good. <laughs> Not that I'm saying anything about Attack on Titan, but I'm saying that's a possible idea. Yes. I, 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 you know, possible. Everything, anything is possible in this world. It doesn't represent my own opinion. But <laughs> anyway, that's, I'm sure, Paul, you come on, you're going to jump in and go, yeah, that's what I... Yeah right. You're, you're speaking for me, right? Yes, yes. You, yeah. you are. You are my voice in all. Okay. Of this, so. Okay. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Was well, not talking about me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on. All right. Moving on to bad decisions. <clears throat> uh, whoa, whoa, whoa! Now you're just putting <laughs> words in my mouth. You You've definitely. got some news about the Hong Kong film that's going to be presented as the Oscar contender. Stop it! Stop it, Paul. Okay. Yeah. Um. The. Producer Association of Hong Kong announced last week, um, to uh, much surprise, I suppose, that Dante Lamps to the four, or should I say four, uh, will be representing Hong Kong at the Oscars uh, Best Foreign Film Race. Um, finalists included uh, Ringo Lamps' Wild wow City and uh, Tale of Two Free Cities, Mabel Turns Tale of Free Cities. Um, for some reason, they could not choose a film that came out before August of 2015, even though the qualifying period is actually October 1st, 2014, and September 30th, um, 2015. So, uh, Paul, th- come on, any, any, did you like anything that came out between October 1st of last year and August the 2nd of this year? Better than to the four, absolutely. Hong Kong film, I mean. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I can name one that's got a couple kids in it and Louis Koo and Miriam Young. I mm. thought it was a much better film, had better acting moments. It's got kids in it. It was a big seller, and it just... I, I don't think it was necessarily at the level to win an Oscar, but if you ask me of a film that's more Oscar bait material, uh, this you know particular film I'm talking about, or To the Four, I mean, it's it, it's a no-brainer for me. Um, a sports movie where, you know, there's overacting and, and fake sweat and, you know, people screaming as they race to the finish line as an Oscar movie. I, I don't know. I, I think they're there. I can actually try and understand their logic here. Okay. You have a kind of a small film that's about very local issues. And actually, to be honest, it's very TV-esque, television-esque, um, and depends on, you know, local love for the actors and the topic and things like that versus you know a a a big budget handsomely produced um sports film you know in multiple languages and you know has very you know nice images and you know shot around the world i kind of understand where they're coming from here you know on on a globe you could say it's the most global of the the hong kong films that was um sure uh, if it's going to win the award for the oscar for globalization then okay well it's again it's the logic of the of the you know 
old fogies of the producer association talking here, not you know us, right? Um, and what their idea of what Americans would like to see in a Hong Kong film, mm. okay? Um, since you know they're not gonna pick a kung fu film produced by Wong Jing or something, uh, um, or you know they can't. I'm not sure why they couldn't go with Choi Hark's uh, taking of Tiger Mountain. Actually, uh, there's a uh, Hong Kong distributor, Hong Kong company producing it, Hong Kong producer, Hong Kong director. So it should qualify as a Hong Kong film. So I'm not sure why they don't, uh, they didn't consider it. Um, but, you know, so like I said, this, that's kind of, I, I could kind of get where they're coming from, whether they have seen the film or whether they, they, they really think that it has a chance or um, whether it's some kind of favor to a company or to a friend or they like Dante Lam a lot because he did win the Art, Art Development Council Award of the year. I, I have no idea. But um, yeah, we're going to be sending uh, two to four to represent us uh, in, in the States yeah. uh, for the Oscars. Well, we'll say maybe it'll win. And then we'll be forced to eat crow. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, let, let, me, let me name the underrepresentatives in the Greater China region. Taiwan will be sending Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin, which, let me remind you, won the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival. China will be sending Wolf Totem, the uh, big budget uh, blockbuster directed by French director uh, Jean Arc Jean Jacques Arnold. Um, Japan is sent. Korea is sending the throne, uh, Legion X period drama, which has a really great word of mouth in Korea right now. Uh, Japan is sending 100 Yen Love, which is a, uh, a film that won the top Japanese Splash Award at the Tokyo International Film Festival. Um, so, Hong Kong sending to the four. So let's let's put that in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, That's it. Uh, good luck to Eddie Pang and. Sean Doe and all the rest. Right. Okay, last piece of news. Um, Lost in Hong Kong, the latest film by director Xu Zhen, uh, his second film, um, set box China's box office records uh, over the weekend, which is not a big surprise, considering that uh, Lost in Thailand uh, was... Uh, the at one point the number one film of all time in uh, or number one local film of all time in China. So it's not a surprise that his follow up would um, be uh, you know such a huge hit in China. The film drops um, uh, Huang Bo and Wang Bao Chang. Uh, Xu Zhen will remain or does remain as the star of the film. He replaced um, his two co stars with Bao Beier, who you may have seen in as in supporting roles in films like. Um, gosh, he was in So Young, um, um, and uh, Bao Bear. Yeah, but anyway, you know he's one of those rising supporting actors that you definitely have uh, probably seen in the film here and there. Um, uh, and Vicky Zhao plays uh, Xu Zhen's character's wife, and also Du Juan, who was in uh, the supermodel who was in American Dreams in China. Um, uh, the film here has a lot of homages to Hong Kong cinema. Um, it also has Ching Ka Lok as the action choreographer. Apparently, there's you know quite a few action scenes in the film. Uh, but ironically, no Hong Kong distribution yet, as far as I know. Hmm. So um, no idea when we get to see the film. But I do kind of look forward to it. Actually, yeah. I, I I did like Lost in Thailand. Um, again, it is not a China version of The Hangover. Stop saying that. Stop. <laughs> Saying that, 
Really, yeah. just stop. But okay, anyway. So yeah, I look forward to uh, how how Shujen does Hong Kong in, uh, in in Lost in Hong Kong. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to that one quite a bit. I, w- I want to jump back to the Oscar thing a minute. Um, I, I just want to clarify. I, I think I know the answer, but um, Andy Lau's movie, Lost in Love, is that not Hong Kong enough to be considered a Hong Kong movie? It's definitely not a Hong Kong production. It's China Money, China director, uh, China producer. Um, Echo only was a distributor, not a producer on the film. Okay. And, and should I actually should I mention uh, other past uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, representatives at the Hong Kong Film Awards? So let's let's put that in perspective. Uh, films that now uh, it's you know kind of in company of. Um, in the past, Hong Kong has sent uh, "Come Drink with Me," the King Wu film. Uh, Zhang Yimou's Raise the Red Lantern, Chen Kaige's Farewell by Concubine, uh, In the Mood for Love, Johnny To's Full Time Killer, um, um, Feng Xiaogang's The Banquet, uh, Yao Fan's Prince of Tears, and uh, let 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 us not forget disqualified but sent The Touch. Mm. So um, so anyone who wants to complain that. Um, uh, two to four is not Hong Kong enough or something. Uh, just remember this list. Uh, we have sent films that you know, are much more Chinese or non-Hong Kong. It's than interesting that they can have stuff like, you know, going back, Raise the Red Lantern and um, and others. Ju- and just because of, you know, I don't know. A, a, it had Hong Kong production companies. A yeah. weird bit of, you know, contracting that, uh, you know, some movies that seem fully rooted in China um, with very little Hong Kong influence are actually considered as Hong Kong films whereas, you know, a movie that has a lead, leading man you know, Andy Lau and uh, Sandra Mm, um, and others is not considered, it's just you know, the the rules when you get into the contract side of things are um, I'm sure they're very clear but from the outside looking in, you know, it can lead to some head scratching well, but if you talk about, I mean, then you can say that Taking of Tiger Mountain is not really rooted in Hong Kong at all. Or even Lost in Love is not rooted in Hong Kong at all. Right? Um, so, well, but see, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying uh, from not, the outside looking, at it, looking in, you'd say, okay, Andy Lau, leading man, uh, Sandra M cameo, you know, so it's got Hong Kong roots to it. Whereas a movie like, you know, Raise the Red Lantern, Gong Li, and the, and the director and all of that, it, that looks purely Chinese from the outside, Right. right? Um, but contractually, because they've got you know things down on paper, it turns out that oh, actually the reverse becomes true, right? You can have films that look like they're much more Hong Kong films, but they're actually not. And you have films that look like they're very Chinese, but they're actually more Hong Kong films. Well, hell, just look at this year. I mean, two to four is completely in Mandarin. Um, let's not even include the narration. Um, you know, no, no Hong Kong stars in any of the leading roles. Uh, barely shot in Hong Kong, um, and mostly well, just because yes, you know Hong Kong money and a Hong Kong director. Yeah. So yeah, it's the the whole idea, you know, Hong Kong cinema and and the film industry and you know it's such a small industry, you know, who producing yeah. who is producing what? It's a very complex. Well, thing. I you know I was joking earlier when we talked about you know the winning the Oscar for globalization, but that that's really what has made, you know, these boundaries so very fluid, right? It, it it's. You know, it is glo- the nature of globalization and, you know, cross-border flows of money and, and filmmaking that makes it kind of hard to pin these down now. 
but it you know it's interesting to talk about for sure well with the, with the whole race of ran entrant thing you could say it's actually always been hard to pin down even 20 years ago right yeah. even before the handover even before people talk about co-production is ruining hong kong cinema you have two very distinctly chinese films going to represent hong kong yeah. and you know actually i don't I remember anyone whining at that time yeah well we didn't have the internet <laughs> <laughs> you win that one okay yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Ma. That's going to wrap it up for our news this week. Let's take a short musical interlude, and we'll be back to talk about our film for this week, Office. All right, and we're back. Our movie this week, the musical, uh, actually stage play turned musical film, uh, Office. This is directed by Johnny Toe and Produced by Johnny Toe and also produced by Sylvia Chang, who uh, was, I guess, the creator of the original um, stage play version, which was called Design for Living. Now, perhaps Kevin can shed a little bit of life on this. In uh, the research that I did, Design for Living is actually the name of a very old uh, stage play from 1932. It's it's undergone quite a few adaptations over the years. There's a film version as well. Um, but that is a very different thing from the play that uh, Sylvia Chang created. So I don't know if she was reinterpreting it or she just liked the name. And because her her stage play, as it sounds, you know, on paper and what's come up on film here um, are very different things from uh, the original design for living play. Although there are some elements that I think may carry over. So there, there, there might be some influence there, but um, I haven't found anything to definitely corroborate that she was adapting from the original and this is not sort of her own um her you know her own work without influence from that but basically uh this is the story of executives at the investment firm called jones and son and they plot scheme and sing their way up and down the corporate ladder um this is a kind of a how would i describe it it's not a, a true musical in the Disney sense, which is kind of how I like my musicals. Um, I'm, I'm very much someone who likes movies that have acting and singing in them and are fully, you know, immersed, immersed in um, the reality of screen sets and these kinds of things. This film takes uh, a somewhat different approach. It goes for the stage on film approach. And, you know, you can see this, there is a history of this in Hong Kong cinema, of course, as if you look at, for example, you know, Cantonese opera performances that were turned into films, but primarily were just going through the motions of the stage performances. Um, and so you, you get this kind of hybrid thing that's not truly something for the stage, but it's not a complete film experience either. Well, my may add is also, you know, Jacques Tati, the French uh, cinema, and also, you know, Bertolt Brecht, the, yeah. the, yeah, the German. What was the favorite. one? What was the one? There was one that is coming to mind. Um, 
Nicole Kidman. Nicole film. Kidman is it Dogville the, or, or something? Dogville, the yeah. Lost Warren Trier film. Also, you know, we yeah, have clearly very, very um, influenced by Brecht. Very, yeah, simple sets. Yeah. Only you know, with borders or something. Yeah, similar thing. Yeah. So uh, there's a there's a lot to be said on different levels about this film, and and I tried to compartmentalize um, each of these. And I'll be upfront, and honest, in saying that again, this is not the kind of musical that I generally like. I like the musicals that are much more, you know, immersed in making a movie uh, rather than kind of making a play movie hybrid thing, okay? Um, so I, I, I'm honest in, in right at the start in saying that I'm going in with a little bit of a negative slant um, towards the film already. The story itself, um, basically, it's again looking at three levels of executives um, at this company. Um, this investment firm. Starting at the top, you have Chow Yun-Fat, who plays Ho. He's kind of like the CEO uh, in charge of things. He is dealing with the thing where he, he has a wife who's... Um, she's in a coma throughout most of the film. But he also has uh, this executive who's helping him to run things, played by Sylvia Chang. She plays uh, uh, executive. Her name is Winnie Chang in the film. And she is kind of running the company. Uh, while he is kind of off, you know, doing doing his own thing. Um, sort of at a level below her, you've got the managerial level. We've got Tang Wei and uh, Eason Chan uh, coming in, and they're kind of like middle management. They're in charge of different groups, and we find out that the two of them kind of have a connection. Eason also has a connection to Sylvia Chang's character. Um, he's kind of like, he reports directly to her. And then um, at the ground floor, sort of the level entry, we have characters played by uh, Wang Zi and Lang Yu Ting. Um, they're kind of coming into the company fresh and new and trying to, you know, work their way up. So we've got the experience of these three different levels um, and, you know, some of the, the ups and downs and challenges that they're facing. And this is all set to the backdrop of the Lehman Brothers scandal. So unless you were living in under a rock back in 2008, basically one of the things that happened during the financial collapse is that we had a couple large firms go under. The U.S. government came in to save uh, a couple of them, but one that it let go was Lehman Brothers. And this has a direct connection to Hong Kong because many Hong Kong um, investment companies, um, you know, um, sort of like our social, a lot of our social security plans, um, some educational plans, many celebrities, like I remember reading that Eric Zhang, in fact, had many Lehman mini bonds himself and lost a lot of money. So a lot of people had money in Lehman, and it was supposedly this, you know, triple A rated whatever. So when it went under, it was a heavy blow to Hong Kong, to other places as well, but it was it was big news here in Hong Kong. So this is kind of the backdrop for, you know, the build up to the to the Lehman crash and then some of the uh, things that happen at the company as a result. Despite that, though, despite it being grounded in the reality of the Lehman Brothers thing, um, much of what we're given here is kind of expected. It's, you know, it's plots you've seen before and sometimes done better in other movies. You know, you've got the idea of office, office gossip. You've got corporate scheming, you know, people sleeping their way to the top. Um, people losing everything with a market crash, um, you know, people doing things like embezzlement, 
So it, it hits all those, you know, okay, this is a corporate story and it hits all those kind of required things. And, and for some of it, it was a little bit too on the nose for me. Um, and I guess because in part what they wanted to go for here was the music side of things. So we'll keep the narrative simple and, you know, we'll, we'll go after the music. So I thought, okay, great music, right? Music's got to be good. Um, for me, I typically judge a musical based on how anxious I am after I watch the movie to go out and buy the soundtrack, right? If I want to rush right out and buy the soundtrack, I know the musical has worked really well. If I don't, and if I don't ever hear the music again, then I know that as a musical, it hasn't worked uh, that well for me. So overall, I think musically, um, it's got a couple nice pieces. Um, some of it's quite traditional. One of the opening pieces, though, like there's an opening song. It's more like a rap, and you've got some Hong Kong performers, uh, Johnny Toe regulars, in fact, who are mouthing the words, or kind of it's kind of like a pseudo rap as they're introducing the newcomers to the company and who takes what coffee. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting approach. Um, but some of the other songs just aren't that catchy. Um, they're not things that I would probably want to return to. Um, the ones I liked best tended to be the duets. There's a duet between Lan Yuting and Wang Ziyi that I thought was, uh, was a very melodious and, and something that I'd go back and listen to again. And there's one with um, Eason and Tang Wei. And I think it's Tang Wei who's singing. She's actually got Tang Wei did sing. Yeah, she's actually got a pretty good voice. And um, so the two of them sound nice together for, for their duet. And th those were okay. Some of the more, you know... Uh, theatrical style choir pieces uh, didn't really come off for me as um, as musically entertaining as, as I would have liked. And this gets into the big problem of the film for me, which I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say it ruined the film for me. And that is this film is all done in a dubbing studio. Okay. Um, now, if they were actually out shooting this movie in, you know, real buildings, not in a stage setting, I could possibly excuse it. You know, if they were actually out shooting people on the street, having dialogue like many Hong Kong movies do, and, you know, Hong Kong's a noisy city, and it can be difficult to get sync sound when you're in a situation like that. I could forgive this movie. But they're shooting in a closed set studio, a soundstage, basically, and they're still doing post-dubbing, and it sounds terrible, right? And the idea of making a musical, which is, should be all about sound, right? It's kind of like me saying, I'm going to go out and make a 3D movie, but I'm going to use a VHS camera to record it. Well, I mean, most musicals are not sang, sung on stage. That's why the, the musical, uh, the uh, Les Miserables was such a big deal last year because people actually sang on set, but most musicals, the music are done okay. in ATR. And, it, and that's, that's fine. And I could, okay. I could accept if the music was, they were lip syncing the music, okay? Which they were. But they don't need to lip sync the acting. Right. On a closed soundstage. You don't need to do that. You can shoot sync sound. And I know it's because of the same reasons we always bring this up. Because they want to do a Mandarin dub and they want to do a Cantonese dub. So why not just do everything in post? But why do that? This is supposed to be a musical where people are acting and they're singing. You capture it in sync sound. 
I mean, that's what a good musical would do. That's what, like you said, Les Mis did it. And they set a new standard for shooting a movie musical. And it was my hope that this movie would have, you know, tried to build on that kind of thing. It was just, for me, so distracting to hear these actors, you know, because you can recognize the voices, you can recognize that it's Chow Yun-Fat, Sylvia Chang, Eason Chan, you know their voices. You know it's them, but they've pulled them back into the studio to re-record over their own lines. It's just, it just sounds terrible. And the fact that it's a musical just makes it, you know, that much worse. The musical, if I may, if I may add, add a possible explanation to this, um, well, okay. First of all, I admit I, I do agree that there is a huge problem with the sound of the movie, um, particularly in the music mixing. Um, like the music ne- is actually much softer than when the dialogue and the drama scenes hit. Right, the music suddenly is much softer and never really hits hits you. Right, in terms of you know oral oral giving you oral experience. But anyway, uh, I think what happens is that Johnny Toe um, is a director who improvises and at certain points, a lot of points actually, a few points, it seems like the dialogues don't match. It seems like they rewrote the dialogue in post-production. Hmm. Um, and possibly they dis- they, they made uh, decisions on changing because uh, Sylvia uh, switches languages um, throughout the film. Yeah. Some, she sometimes speaks Mandarin, sometimes she's Cantonese. Same for Tom Wei, um, who seems to be speaking, switching in between. And I think there may be a, pr- a post-production uh, decision to change. Let's say if, if Tom Wei is speaking Cantonese on the phone to her fiance, um, maybe in the post-production they realize, hey, she should be speaking Mandarin. And so then she dubs herself. They have to switch to Mandarin. Um, so it could be a lot of these, you know, post-production decisions to sort of, sort of, to sort of tweak the dialogue uh, that led to it. With that said, I agree that Milky Way films uh, do have a certain penchant for sort of, uh, let's say, having some kind of sloppy process in post-production, whether it's because of money or it's because of time or it's because of whatever. Um, yeah, so I agree that there is a technical, definitely a technical issue in terms of sound in this film. Yeah. And it just seems to me that, I mean, by the end of the film, I'm thinking, where are the films of the 60s and the 70s, right? You go back and, you know, thumb through the Celestial Collection, if you've got any of those, and look at, you know, Hong Kong Nocturne and The Dancing Millionaires and, you know, and, and these movies that had great musical numbers, but there were these big lavish productions, you know, and, and they were wonderfully done. And it's like we've moved so far away from that. And, and those were in Mandarin, right? They, they were fully films. Everybody's speaking Mandarin for the most part. Even, you know, it, there's dubbing on the Hong Kong actors speaking Cantonese. That's fine. But that was then. And this is now. I mean, I think we've gotten to a place where we just, okay, we've got one person speaking Mandarin and another piece of the person speaking Cantonese. You just let them act and you leave the sound you know, you record that sync sound. That's why they're acting. That's why you don't want to, you know, pull them back into the studio and get that sort of canned sound. Um, and again, I can understand it in films when they're out in the real world and, you know, jets and planes and buses and all that stuff happens. But in a closed studio, it just seems like, I don't know, poor planning or they just really didn't think. And for a musical film, it just... it. it, it it's that much worse. It's like rubbing salt in the wound for me. What's worse is that you could actually clearly hear uh, uh, one scene with sync sound at a yeah, hospital scene with Charon Fat. There, there's a couple. There's a couple yeah, moments yeah. where it's like, okay, I 
think that was sync sound, but they don't last. And you, know, yeah, you are right. There, there's a, there's a difference in levels with, with some of the music as well. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, and for me, it, it really makes the film almost unbearable. Now, that being said, let me talk about some very excellent sound and some of the excellent points about this film. Um, the sound effects. I didn't catch who was doing it, but they did an excellent job. And because of what they're doing, so to try and explain this film, there are no walls in this film, okay? So basically you have this office building that's represented through framework on this massive soundstage. It's a multi-story you know, story soundstage. And the camera moves in and out of the building. There are rooms that are established by these frameworks, but there are no actual walls. So you can kind of see through everything. And they use fluorescent lighting as part of the constructs because, you know, fluorescent lighting is a big, you know, is, is a big feature of office buildings. And so it's, it presents this very sort of interesting stage dynamic um, that at some times you forget that you're actually on a sound stage. Other times you're kind of quickly reminded, especially when they're doing like a close-up of somebody and you see this, this mesh of wire against the wall and it looks like the holodeck from Star Trek or something. Um, but then there are moments where they go sort of out of the building and they're on the street and they just have like, you know, some settings, like a few plants on, on the side or something and it, people are walking and moving and talking. And they've got excellent sound effects. Like, it sounds like you're on the street. You hear traffic, though you don't see any traffic. You hear people talking. You hear all the ambient noise that's there when people are um, out at, like, a restaurant or when they're on the MTR. Um, it's just really excellent sound work that pulled me back into the setting um, in, in a really sort of vibrant manner. So that side of the sound was was really good it's like they had a they had different sound people they had these these foley guys and these 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 people who were responsible for the sound effects as one team and then they just had joe the plumber or somebody doing the the audio work for the actors and the dialogue um it, it's just it is really interesting to see this one side of sound be really great and this other side um be really really bad for the most part um and this, t we talk a little bit too about the, the set, right? The set is very, you know, it's this, this interesting reflection of, of space, but no space um, in a sense. And it's reflecting Hong Kong too, without actually showing Hong Kong stuff. So as the people go, get, get off the train to work, they're kind of in, again, even the MTR car itself is like this uh, orangish reddish frame, but it doesn't have any actual walls to it. And it makes so, for great filming, right? So, um, something worth noting is that actually the film sort of mixes geography, right? I mean, the opening credits, we see the Shanghai skyline. Um, and then in um, the cars are on the left, the wheels are on the left, which mm. is China. Um, and uh, you don't, even though the subtitles say it's Hong Kong, the Chinese dialogue never referred to the city's name. Yeah, it's, it's a no place. I mean, like the, yeah. the station itself is called big central right it's not no, it's, the direction of the line uh the the, the, or, the station is named central, uh, yeah the station of the the station is uh the jong Sun tower i think yeah 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 um and and so it's you know it, it's not stating that it's hong kong specifically but you see all these things that give it that familiar sense right and like 
there's a TV monitor in the MTR, and when it pans up there, it's like it's like it's not TVB. It's just called like some very generic, you know, um, news TV or something. They go into a convenience store, and although the credits, the the subtitles are saying, you know, please use your octopus card, you don't hear the same octopus card tone, and you never actually see an actual octopus card. So. They do a really good job in terms of the decoration of the sets and the use of props to to give you this sense that, okay, this could be Hong Kong, but it's not Hong Kong kind, kind of a way. Um, there's also nice attention to details. There's a scene, for example, where the characters are supposed to be up um, one of the upper floors because the building itself has got like 70-something floors, but of course you only see about three of them in in the stage setting. But because they break things up into different sections, these different sections can actually be on any, you know, higher floor. And we don't really have have specific numbers. But there's one scene where the characters are out smoking on what I'm assuming is like the smoking floor, which is outside because you're not the allowed, roof. you know, yeah, you're not allowed to smoke indoors. But as they're outside, you know, in this space, because it's, again, remember we're in an indoor set, um, but they actually have the sense to have fans, you know, off-screen blowing on the people to give this the sense that they're high up and that there's wind and so it's little attentions to detail that I think you know really make this film very very special in the way that it's presenting aspects of the story that in some ways almost make up for some of the detriments that I was you know talking about before um, the one the, the couple things that kind of pulled me out was there's a couple shots where they use a CGI for both an elevator sequence and for um, a car driving sequence that don't really work very well for me. And um, I think that they could have maybe done without those sequences in, in some ways, but I know why, you know, they wanted them in there, in there narratively. Um, so yeah, overall, I think narratively it's kind of okay. The music's kind of okay, but the sound really ruins things. But then you've got these other aspects, really on the production side, the sound production, the stage production, that really redeemed the film for me um, quite a bit by the end. Performances, you know, top top notch, really, you know, because you do have big, these big headline actors. Chow Yun Fat is in it, but uh, he's given like a special appearance credit, and he deserves a special appearance credit because he's not really in it that much. I mean. The film really kind of focuses on the underlings more than anything and some of the political or the corporate manipulations that are kind of happening as they're jockeying for different positions. Um, but it's pretty straightforward. One, you know, you get, you get to, to know what's what very early on. They don't keep things hidden. There's not like a, a super secret reveal or at the end or anything. Um, and I, again, think they were trying to keep it simple because they were more interested in going the stage slash musical route of things. Um, there was an interesting note that I took where they mention one of the characters gets an iPhone 3G, right? So this does kind of clearly set the time frame of, um, you know, when this is taking place, when the iPhone 3G was kind of the new hot piece of tech that uh, young executives would have. Um, this is, again, I think something that is not going to please everyone, especially if you're like me, if you're really looking for, um, you know, musicals that kind of go all out rather than these sort of semi-stage production musicals as this tries to be. That being said, despite the really terrible sound, 
Um, you will want to see this if you like these leads at all. I mean, I'm a big fan of Sylvia Chang's work. And of course, you know, Chow Yun-Fat's here. So it's, it's kind of a must-see for fans of Hong Kong cinema. But I did find, because it's like 117 minutes or so, maybe 119 minutes, it's almost at the two-hour mark. And I did find it about a about the 90-minute mark that I was really kind of starting to look at my watch um, every so often to see, you know, uh, how closely we were creeping uh, towards the end. So it, it's a little bit longer than I probably would have preferred. A lot of times musicals tend to run longer because of the musical numbers. And if you really like the music, you tend not to mind so much, right? Um, but for here, I think I was kind of, you know, 50-50 on the music. A couple of the songs I liked, <laughs> a couple of them um, not so much. There are some cameos. You, As I said, you have the regular Johnny Toe regulars. Um, you'll see quite a few of them here um, in different places. Not all of them sing. Some of them sing, although I don't really know if it's them singing because, again, they're oh, doing... Oh, Eddie Cho definitely sang. <laughs> Did he? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. They're, they're doing lip syncing. Um, so, for example, Stephanie Che, uh, she does uh, one of the opening song rap things with, with her and uh, Timmy Hong, Sammo Hong's son. Um, and so it's fun to see them because you don't expect to see these guys um, in a musical. It just would have been so much better if it would have been sync sound. It would just, for me, it would have worked so much, so much better. I would have been so much happier. Kevin, any final thoughts you want to throw out about Office? Oh, I thought it was just great. I mean, I mean, for the music, um, the music is a problem, but just the way that, that, that Johnny Toe choreographs his camera better than his actors... I think that's just fantastic. Um, um, yeah, I really think if the technical aspect was a little better or easier on the eyes, I think it really would have been like mm. a really great, great film. But at this moment, it uh, suffers from the, the Milky Way production syndrome. Is there any chance um, that perhaps there's a Mandarin version out there that would be sync? No, because then you have the Cantonese actors dubbed. Because Ethan Chan definitely spoke... Cantonese on set. Chan Fat definitely spoke Cantonese on set. Right, um, but but is there any chance that like a, you know what I'm saying? Because like some films, they'll have a sync sound where actors are speaking in different languages, but then no. they'll do like a Cantonese dub that just overdubs everything. No, because the the Hong Kong version also mixes Mandarin and Cantonese, and that's about as original you're gonna get. Mm. Because you know the fact that he has mixed languages already knows that is not the China dubbed version. So there is no. I don't think we'll ever get a so-called so-called sync sound version because that would be just a mixed jumbo of languages in there. Um, and forget the music. I mean, no one was singing actually on set. So that's definitely not happening. Um, yeah. So I think the Hong Kong version is about as original, so-called original soundtrack you're going to hear because at least you get a few sounds in sync sound, a few scenes in sync sound, I mean. Um, the two actors playing the younger, the youngest ones, they're not even supposed to speak any Mandarin, and yet they're both Mandarin speakers, and they speak Mandarin the entire time, so we never have a version where they're not hmm. dubbed, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it, it. I think it'll also be easy to draw some comparisons between this and the uh, last Hong Kong musical, technically, which was uh, perhaps Love. I think at the end of the day... I thought like, you say mismatched couples. No, no, no. That, <laughs> that, that goes back a ways. Um, yeah, this, this I think... Uh, probably fares a little bit better for me um, than perhaps Love did. Um, just, again, despite my criticisms, I think I like this one quite a bit more than that one. 
I think uh, I'm inclined to agree here as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, if you're again, if you uh, if you're somebody who is a big fan of the leads, this is still worth checking out, despite my gripes and, and criticisms uh, of of the sound. Though I don't know if you'll be completely blown away um, by the music or wanting to rush out to buy the soundtrack. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Okay, you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Gobers of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. Also, a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com, or you can drop us a line on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us, that is eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can hit us up over on Facebook at eastsw. West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all the things that he's doing uh, in his day-to-day writing. So, Kevin, where can they hook up with you? Well, um, first of all, you can read my daily news writings on Film Business Asia. That's www.filmbiz.asia. You can email me at kevin at filmbiz.asia. You can also now, starting now, starting in about two days here in Hong Kong, uh, in two days you can read my work on Discovery and Silk Road magazines. Um, I am in charge of the in-flight entertainment section, so you see my name appear a few times there on uh, on those monthly magazines. Yeah, and you don't need to actually fly to get those. You can get those via an iOS app, right? The yeah. Uh, so Discovery has an iPad app called Discovery, so you can read. Uh, my work on there as well. Yeah, so check that out. We'll talk a bit more about that, I think, next week once uh, the first issue is out and live. Okay. All right, so um, our next episode, 176. We don't have a a new local film to talk about this week, but we've got some other stuff circulating. There was a Steffi movie that came and went in the mix that we might talk about next time. We've also got... uh, uh, Save Matt Damon on Mars movie floating around and an animated feature Hotel Transylvania 2 that's circling around. I'm not sure what we're going to get to next time, but it'll be something uh, so you can look forward to whatever that is. All of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying never sleep your way to the top and we'll see you next time. <laughs> see you next week, everybody. Uh-huh.